Welcome to Politicking with Jason Whitlock, hosted by Curtis Schoon. Good morning, Jason. How are you today? Awesome. Good to be here. Happy Tuesday. Happy Tuesday to you. Um, a lot of things been going on in the media lately um, involving politics and race as usual. That seems to be the norm. Um, one of the things that stood out to me was running back Hall of Famer, I believe, Herschel Walker. Not in the Hall of Fame. Not in the College Hall, Hall of Fame. Fame, not the NFL, not the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Blew that one, huh? Yeah, I'm not. He, he's not. He had a good NFL career, not a great NFL career. Yeah, but I, I saw that he went to um, Congress to speak out against reparations. And I, I, I you know, I, just to be fair and balanced, if I got a problem with celebrities promoting liberal narratives, I gotta be consistent and, and be, be against celebrities promoting conservative narratives. And I, and I don't even know if that's a conservative narrative, to be honest with you. But I thought that was kind of peculiar. What are your thoughts on that? Well, for you know, let's be totally clear and factual. I think he participated virtually because I don't think the Senate Judiciary Committees or whatever these things are, I don't think they're bringing people in during this COVID deal. So I think he participated virtually. And you have to be asked, and so conservatives or Republicans asked him, and I can't remember the other, they, they had two witnesses. It was Herschel Walker. Larry Elder. Was it Larry Elder was the other one? Yeah, Larry Elder. And so <clears throat> uh, he was asked, and I think I would have sat it out, you know, like, now nah, I'm good, because one, I believe the whole reparations conversation is bogus. I, I think that it's it's a distraction. I think it's something that uh, isn't going to happen. And I think that people talk about it and promote it as a way of building their own individual brands. And I'm not talking about Herschel, I'm talking about uh, the black social leaders or whatever People over Twitter love to talk about uh, reparations, but I, I just don't think that, you know, 150 years after the Civil War, I don't think, you know, oh, we're going to get reparations, or even 60 years after the Civil Rights Movement, oh, we're going to get reparations. If we were going to get reparations, during Dr. King's civil rights movement would have been the time to ask and demand that. 60 years later, I don't, I, again, I just think it's a political distraction. And so I would have just avoided, you know, I, I don't, it, it would be like someone inviting me. If you had invited me to say, Jason, let's have a conversation today about you uh, dating Beyonce. I'd be like, well, that's not gonna happen. And I really don't have time for that. And so you can have that conversation by yourself, Curtis. Do you, of course, n n neither of us know what his motivations were, but 
I, I agree with you on, on a lot of points you just made. I don't believe reparations is going to happen. I also feel somewhat like you that if the difference with me is I think the Civil Rights Act of 64 was our reparations as far as the country was concerned, the government. That I, I think they was like, now you, you're on an even playing field, quote unquote, even if it was or was not the case. I think that was the gesture, the overture that, okay, this is gonna make everything right. I, I believe a lot of people saw that as reparations which is the way they make things right. Um, they, were go, they were willing to make things right through policy. I think a lot of people on the left, the far left are expecting some kind of monetary compensation. They say the policy isn't enough and they, they want some money, they want checks. You know, um, we've, had, we've had people advocate put numbers out there, $400,000 per person. They do it all, they do it all of these things. And, and, and again, I don't, sometimes I, I wonder, Jason, do they really believe that or are they selling false hope? What do you think? I, I don't even know if they're selling false hope as much as they're drawing a crowd and drawing traction and relevance for themselves. And there's a reason for them to be on TV. And again, a lot of people, man, are addicted to being on TV. Fame is a drug and it's the most powerful drug. Uh, and so people are addicted to it. And, and if, if talking about reparations is a way for me to stay on TV, uh, that's what a lot of people are willing to do. And that's why so many people are like willing to go on TV and talk about, well, uh, they wouldn't let me pee at a Starbucks. And so that's racism. And so let's have days of, cause remember that in Philadelphia when somebody couldn't pee at a Starbucks or whatever, we talked about that on TV for a week or whatever. Mm -hmm. that, that's like people, that's, it's content creators. It's race content creators who are doing this to drive television ratings and traction. And that's a job for some people. And it's, it's, it, it's not about trying to move a conversation forward. It's not about trying to move black people forward. It's about how can I create a job for myself and create content to feed the machine that television has built around the discussion of race. And that, that's, I mean, these people are content creators and they talked uh, Herschel Walker into participating in the content creation around race and, 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 <clears throat> and reparations. The only thing I would add to your point of view about the 64 Civil Rights Act, I think white people also think the Civil War was reparations that, you know, I believe I would have to go look up the number, but several hundred thousand Americans died in a conflict primarily centered on race and slavery. And I think when people start, they put, well, man, you know, a lot of us died. More of us died than black people died during the civil war conflict about ending slavery. Uh, they feel like that was a form of reparations. And then the 64, the civil rights movement and the 
things they agreed to then feel like that was a form of, of reparation. Uh, was it enough? Uh, you know, did we perhaps cut a bad deal as in the 60s? Probably, but <clears throat> you know, you got to, you have to live with the consequences of your decision. And so if, if, if we wanted reparations, because didn't Japanese people get reparations for interment during the uh, World War II or something? Yeah, they were interned because they weren't trusted. So they thought maybe they were enemy agents and so on. Yeah. And so I would have to look up when they got reparations for that. Was it 60 years later, 40 years later, 20 years later, 10 years later? I I'm not sure. I'd have to look it up. But again, I think the time to negotiate for reparations was in the 1960s, not in 2020. I just want to... Um... I, I differ from you a little bit with the Civil War as reparations because I think the whole idea of reparations was to, to bring those freed slaves up to speed. If they own nothing, they have no money, no resources, you free them and then how do they, how do they get you know, accepted into society? How do they assimilate into society with no resources? And I think the reparations initially the 40 acres and a mule was designed to help them be sustainable, sustainable self-sustainable. And, 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 and that's different from the deaths. I think the deaths were a high price that was paid, but ultimately the deaths of those soldiers couldn't support the livelihood of the freed slaves. They needed something to do, something to work with. A lot of these people had no education. Most of them had no education. They had their skills. They didn't even know how to negotiate business deals because a lot stayed on the uh, plantations because they didn't even know how to function off the plantations. You know, the, the thing with reparations for me is that the elites, the powers that be, didn't have a problem with giving Black people reparations until they realized that by giving every Black person 40 acres and a mule, it would elevate them past a lot of white people, white people who used to work on the plantations and oversee the blacks. You see, because a lot of whites didn't have 40 acres and a mule. So if you put, if you gave everybody those 40 acres and the mule, now you're putting the white working class at the bottom. See, and, and I think that is still an issue today that nobody recognizes. Let me ask you this, Curtis. If you were the ruling class, or let's say you weren't even the ruling class, but you looked like the ruling class, right. <laughs> would you give an entire group of people a leg up over 50% of white folks? Absolutely not, because it would destabilize everything and threaten my Rulership. You know, you know, my everything. <laughs> yeah. and, and, and I think, and that's why I say I don't think it was because they didn't like blacks. Otherwise, they would have never thought to give it to them in the first place. It was only until they realized how problematic it would be that they was like, wait a minute. Because the elite are a small group. And, um, and, and again, black people like to say white and think like all whites are the same. And they are not. And, and we see this all the time. But somehow, 
We can't grasp it. All whites do not have money. All whites do not have privilege. There are more whites on food stamps than blacks. Uh, whites were losing their jobs just like black people last year during the pandemic. And, and the argument is always based on the worst case blacks, worst scenario black people juxtaposed to the best scenario white people. And, and that causes all the emotion and all that. But I think that the large portion of both groups probably have more in common with each other than either has with the, the top 10% or 1% of the country. That's just my thoughts. They certainly have more, and I agree with you, but they certainly have more in common with each other than the small handful of people that are allowed a large platform and get to pretend as if they're smarter than everybody else and get to talk and, and lead these discussions. The, 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 the little useful idiots or uh, people that the elites allow a platform, uh, you know, don't have much in common with the working black man, white man, black woman, white woman. Uh, and, and those people, again, the, the, the people leading the discussion for reparations, they don't give a damn about uh, working class black people. Again, it's a hustle for them, for them to stay relevant and again, to keep an easy job. I mean, could you have your job? Again, I've been doing it for a long time. The writing, there is some difficulty to it, but most of these people are just talking. And, you know, if all you got to do is talk shit for a living, that's a good job. And you get paid well, you just show up before a camera and, and talk shit and, you know, uh, say a few little scripted points that at this point you can all pick up because most everything I hear in the media from black, from the average black or white broadcaster is some shit they picked up directly off Twitter. And so all you gotta do is open a Twitter feed, open a Twitter account and say, and go on TV and say what's popular over Twitter. And people are making six, seven figures a year just doing that. It's amazing. It's a great hustle. And I see why they continue. Back, back to this. Uh this issue with reparations, man. Um, and, and I just want to say that I think you are correct. A lot of people, they just love the microphone. They love the sound of their voice. Um, they get in front of them and they say anything, they call it cloud chasing. But a lot of them are grifters too, because they're getting money, promising these people that they're going to get, get them reparations. And, and I just think a lot of us need to start focusing on what we can do for ourselves today and, and do for each other, do with each other and stop um, thinking somebody's gonna save us or somebody owe us something. If somebody owe you something and you don't have the means to force them to pay, you might as well just charge it to the game. You know, and as far as Herschel Walker and, and, and Larry Elder and the others, you know, Larry Elder's a very smart guy. Um, he's a historian, so I guess he could provide historical context to the argument. But I do want to say 
the right cannot reach out to black people if they're gonna mimic the tactics of the left using celebrity and so on and so forth. They gotta come with something tangible. And, and I hear the complaints about upwards of 90% of black people vote democratic all the time and so on and so forth. You gotta come with something better. Don't come with the same thing because we're getting bamboozled on the left. And if you use their plays, it's almost like you're trying to just bamboozle us on the right too. What are your thoughts? I, 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 and I'm all running to the people like, oh my God, he's defending <laughs> Trump. But I, I'm, I just got to keep it real. Yeah. Trump tried to like, hey man, here's financial support for HBCUs. Here, you guys say the criminal justice system is terribly flawed and rigged. Here's some criminal justice reform. And then at the end, he was like, here, let me meet with Ice Cube, who had met with a group who had come up with a game plan, uh, the Platinum Program the or platinum whatever that's plan a, or Platinum Plan. Or, uh, he, and he had worked with Dr. Boyce Watkins and a bunch of other people from the financial world, not it, it wasn't Ice Cube sitting around with Easy and Dr. Dre saying, "Hey man, what 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 a bunch of rappers? What can what should we ask for for black people?" And Trump met with them, incorporated that into the platinum plan, and so I felt like Trump did try to come at black people in a completely different way. In HBCUs, y'all want to be self sufficient, y'all want to educate your own blah, blah, blah. Here's the financial backing so you can stand on your own two feet. Uh, here's some criminal justice reform. And then basically he worked with Ice Cube on some kind of version of reparations to some degree, uh, uh, economic investment in black communities. Basically that's, I think it was $500 billion maybe, or I, I can't remember. I can't remember the number, 500 million, 500 billion. I can't remember the number, but it was directed toward investment in black people. And, uh, you know, we didn't want to hear that because, you know, <laughs> a lot of us, I just, somebody came at me over Twitter. I tweeted out something about Cam Newton and the NFL quarterback and the little high school kid he got in a beef with on the sidelines. They, the kid was trolling him disrespectfully and cams responded back saying i'm rich i'm rich that was his response and i tweeted out that uh look man we built a culture built on disrespect based on the disrespect and i was basically commercial rap music battle rap and i said and and then it's based on disrespect and it's based on materialism getting the bag and i said so we shouldn't act shocked that Cam Newton and some high school kid basically reflected that culture. Disrespect and the bag. Well, I got money, blah, 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 and I'm disrespecting someone older. And so somebody tweeted at me that, man, they really loved my tweet until they found out I was the author. And then that changed his view of mm. something he agreed with. 
And that's where we are as black people in terms of we're so into, do I like the person? And if I don't like the person, I can therefore reject any truth that they say. And I, I just, I see it in adults. I see it in young people. I've never seen a group of people so into personality or emotions or some little feeling of like versus being attracted to the truth and just standing on the truth. And so I, I guess I just say all that to, to say we, we, Whatever, what was the movie where you can't handle the truth? Uh, yeah, with Jack, Jack Nicholson. Jack Nicholson. Yeah, Jack Nicholson. I think we, the group, is like, it's like, wow, we really can't handle the truth. We, I, I don't think when I look at us and how we behave, I think we don't understand that the truth really does set us free. The the ultimate, if you follow the truth all the way to its conclusion, it justifies, or justifies it, it explains the black condition and in America. And it's actually on our side. The truth is on our side. That's why I'm not fearful of it. You can say, oh, you can, oh man, uh, more black men are in prison than in college. That's not a that's a statement of fact or based somewhat in fact or at some point, it doesn't shake me about what black people are capable of accomplishing and have accomplished in America. That's a little negative fact that does not undermine uh, the righteousness of black people or it doesn't undermine our cause. It's just a symptom. And so I look at the way we operate and we're so afraid of the truth. We, we act so guilty when we shouldn't act guilty and we should embrace the truth all the way to its conclusion because it actually defends us. You know, um, first thing, you're correct about disrespect has somehow become empowering. Part of our, our self-culture introduced by rap. We even introduced the word dis in the English lexicon <laughs> because it's so commonplace in, in our world. You know, disrespecting someone is seen as, as exhibiting some kind of power over them. So those kids, I guess they felt like they were demonstrating power over Cam, you know, because they could disrespect them and not get slapped in their mouth, you know, like it, it showed that they were brave, you know, and, and, and that's an underlying thing. But back to Herschel, the root of the things that you were talking about, why we're so emotional and so forth, it's this system of having, of celebrity worship, having these these intellectual lightweights, and I'm not calling him that. I'm just saying so many celebrities have been used. We, they're, they're propped up for us to look up to them because of their wealth, because they've, they have escaped the poverty that a lot of us are dealing with day to day. And not just us, a lot of America's dealing with poverty. But for us, 
it's like, okay, that's the way they know something that we don't. If they say go left, I'm going to go left because they obviously know something that I don't. And, and when I, I think when the conservatives come using celebrities, celebrities, no matter how well-intentioned, it reinforces that strategy. I, I, I think, I, and that's why, that's why I was a little alarmed at it. I, I don't have a problem with Herschel. I don't have a problem with his views. I think possibly it, it was unnecessary. He didn't have to say it. It's not like it's going to happen. It comes off like he was trying to ingratiate himself to certain people. You know, I'm no big advocate of reparations, but you will never get me to go and say, we don't need to do this. There's no need to say it because it's not going to happen. Let's talk about what we need to do. If you got Congress air, rather, rather than talk about we don't need reparations, say forget reparations. Can, can we do this? This might be a better situation that's more doable for everybody. See, it, it, it's so easy to take the, take the popular road and the, the road that's popular with your audience. It's easy to tell people what they want to hear, what they expect you to hear. And, and, and you know, um, you and I to varying, various degrees, we tell black people things they don't want to hear. But they might need to hear it. Yeah, I, I would put it. <laughs> I would put it the second way first. I, I really do think we're trying to tell people what they need to hear. Yeah. And so, at no point am I ever trying to tell pe anybody, black, white, whatever, but particularly black, what they don't want to hear. I'm trying to tell them what they need to hear. I'm trying to give them a way of looking at life and a philosophy that will allow them to stand on their own two feet and not be running around looking for white liberals to save them. And I'm trying to tell them the philosophies that have allowed me to stand on my own two feet. And, and so, so, so often, again, they recruit the tallest, fastest athlete who is tall because God made him that way is fast because God made him that way uh, and has all this incredible athletic ability that has made him rich because we have a society that values entertainment and they can entertain. But there's no reason to sit around and think LeBron James is some sort of intellectual thought leader. There's, and, and I don't say that despite... We have black people who are intellectual thought leaders. We're just not attracted to them. We, we, we like entertainers uh, who follow a script. Someone is providing them a script. Uh, we prefer them. And, and they're just, and again, as it relates to the Herschel Walker thing, I saw something on your Twitter feed about, you know, why don't white people have, why isn't their leadership coming from the football field or the basketball court or from a movie set? And ours are, who, again, and this is where I go, this is Exclusively. a strategy. Exclusively. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is like a strategy that someone's executing 
and we keep going for it. And, and what I don't understand about LeBron James or even, in, and I like Herschel Walker, I, I don't mean this disparagingly, really at either one of them, but I don't understand why they see themselves as leaders. Again, <laughs> it's like, okay, you can dunk a basketball uh, and you can, you ran really hard on a football field and, and, and I put Herschel in a different category just because he'd been out of the pro sports for 25 years, probably. He, he actually has a little time to actually think about these issues if he so chooses. I just can't imagine any athlete in the prime of their career or at any point in their career when they're spending most of their energy preparing to play a sport to then think, you know, as my side hustle, I'm going to be a, a community leader and activist as my side hustle. I, I just, <laughs> that, that takes a level of arrogance and delusion that's astronomical. And narcissism. Yeah, that's, a, that's just astronomical. And I don't understand why we keep going for it. In just keeping it all the way real. I mean, if you listen to LeBron James talk, he has a hard time matching subject and verb. He's, th this, this is not a road scholar. It's just not. He's a tremendous athlete. I think his heart to some is in, in, in the right place. I really do think his heart's in a, he's doing the best that he can, but the best that he can isn't very good compared to people who actually think about, study this stuff. I mean, I'm just talking off the top of my head, but the, like Dr. Boyce Watkins, far more qualified to talk about any of this stuff than LeBron James. And- But he doesn't have a championship. <laughs> he doesn't have a championship and doesn't have all of Hollywood backing him, I guess. I. I why we go for it is just what is my and it's we're the thing that I didn't feel when I was growing up and I'm 53 and I really did like some athletes in turn Darnell Hillman is Afro or who there were some athletes that I thought the world of mm -hmm. but I was never a groupie for athletes and when I look at social media it's like a big groupie convention. Everybody's there to protect, make sure no one says anything bad about Cam Newton. Oh my God. Make sure no one says anything bad about LeBron James. It's, it's like a, I walked into a groupie convention. And, and, and if you sit there and you're not a groupie, all the groupies look at you like you're crazy. Man, you don't want none of this celebrity D? Are you kidding me? <laughs> Look, speaking of celebrities, man, there's a there's a, a a show or something being promoted. I forgot the name, and it presented Angela Yee and again another football player, Jerome Bettis, yeah. and two other people who I have no idea of who they are. Um, Angela Yee, most people probably don't know who she is because. She's just like a co-host on The Breakfast Club. And people in our community would be surprised at 
how anonymous some of these people that are well known to us are, how anonymous they are to the, the country at large. And I'll bring up one quick example. I was talking to someone about Wendy Williams one time because I, I have a contact that that is connected to her and was connected to her, her manager at the time. And I was talking about, you know, promotion and marketing in certain regions, because I found out that Wendy's show started in, in Detroit and it did really good there. And the person who was white, he had no idea who Wendy Williams was and he wasn't even pretending. Like we would say Wendy Williams and take it for granted, everybody knows who Wendy Williams is. No, they do not. Everybody does not know. Everybody's not interested in what she does, her show, and all of that. A lot of us are, but not everyone is. So now when I saw Angela Yee and Jerome Bettis presented as Black leaders, I said what you said earlier. Like, a corporation could never present me as a Black leader. There's a lot of responsibility that comes with being a leader. You are responsible for the outcome of the people who follow you. Leadership means accountability for your actions, your decisions. You're like the head of the household in a nuclear family. If the father makes a mistake, man, everybody could lose, you know? And when you say you're a leader, I just don't understand how these people are so quick to accept that title as if it doesn't come with some sort of serious responsibility and outcomes. And they need to be called out for it, all of them, from the left or the right. I, I, I don't care for it at all. I mean, I've been on The Breakfast Club. I don't know Angela yet. I think she's there to diffuse things. And I mean, she does what she does. She doesn't bother me in any way, but she's no damn leader. Who made her a leader? The same people who had Cardi B interview our now president two times. And this is offensive to black people. This, this shows what they think of us. And so many of us go along with it that they, they go to the lowest depths to connect and, and, and make things relatable to us. And somebody, it, we, we got to change that, man. We got to change that. It's, you know, one of the lessons my father taught me when I was 17, 18 years old, is there's a responsibility that goes along with everything you accept from someone. And it, it kind of, when I was 17, 18, it blew my mind. Cause he was basically, he was telling me a story cause my father was, you know, in Indianapolis, well known in the black community and was one of them hood rich thousandaires in the black community at various times in his life. When, when I was living with him, uh, when I was 17 and 18, he was flat on his ass broke. The IRS had come and taken everything from him. He had been irresponsible with his taxes. And, you know, we were, we were in a one bedroom, 400 square foot apartment in the hood. And he, but he still had all these friends from when he was, you know, hood rich and a thousandaire and, you know, one of the biggest players in Indianapolis. And so his friend, a guy named Slim Carruthers, everybody in Indianapolis knows Slim. He 
was in the fight game, owned all kinds of property in the inner city, backed the numbers in Indianapolis. Slim wanted my father to go with him to a, a, I think it was a Mike Tyson fight, heavyweight fight out in Las Vegas. Because that's how, the, when my father had it, that's how they ran. They went to any city they wanted to and kicked it. There was a big event, blah, blah, blah. And I can remember, my, <clears throat> I was like, man, daddy, Slim wants you to go to the fight, man, you should go. And he was like, no, nah, man, uh, I'm not in position to, uh, to pay for him to go to the fight. And, uh, I, you know, I ain't letting nobody, I ain't letting no man, you know, carry me. And I said, because he was like, once I accepted that, he's like, it's basically like, I hate to use this word, but this is what he said. He was like, it's like, that nigga owns me. Like, yeah. <laughs> uh, he was bitch. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and real men understand that. And, and so he, did, and I can that conversation, and I can remember it was like, my father, it was late at night, and he'd come home liquored up, and he just liked to tell stories, and blah, blah, and he walked me through that story, and it stuck with me for the rest of my life. Here at 53, I still remember, and I tell people all the time, I, I look at people just accepting this and accepting that, and thinking no responsibility goes along with any of it, and there's tremendous responsibility. And so, again, just like you said, when someone starts calling you a leader, and you accept that, are you willing to accept all the responsibility that goes along with that? Like, are you willing to carry yourself, do the research, try, you know, try to be as informed on these topics as you possibly can? Or are you just willing to repeat the talking points you picked up over social media? That way, no one's going to criticize you. You'll get to keep the label as leader. You'll continue to get speaking engagements based off of being classified an activist or a leader. That means some college can invite you to campus and cut you a check for five or ten thousand. We're hearing from this black leader, this black activist. Here's a five thousand, ten thousand dollar check. Come speak to our students, and then the university and say, "Look how diverse we are. We had a black activist speaker come to campus." It's all a hustle in a game that has nothing to do with pushing the black community forward. It's just a hustle and a game for the activist leader to make money, for the white liberals in the academic world to present themselves as non-prejudiced. It's, again, there's like this whole industry built around pretending to care about working class black people and I, I, social media, black Twitter, everybody's in on the hustle. Everybody's in on the hustle. Nobody cares about the people. I don't know what Jerome Bettis has been doing. When I saw his name, I had forgotten he existed until I saw that promotion, that promo. I do remember that Angela Yee, when the singer Tank was up there at the Breakfast Club or on her own podcast, I can't recall which one it was. He, he said something to the effect that because if a man performs oral sex on another man once or twice, it doesn't make him gay. How do you entertain that? Yo, you, you see. Put me in a bad spot, Curtis. There's some places I can't, I can't go. 
<laughs> I just covered up my face. I only want people to say I giggle. Yo, <laughs> this, you know, black women who love black men don't even entertain those kind of conversations with black men. I don't know what's going on nowadays. I don't know if Tank is Angela Yee black. I mean, that that was the other thing when I looked at that picture I, I, you tweeted out. I think she's Chinese and Jamaican, yeah. But I, yo, man, ye, I, I can't. Know, we have Washingtons in my neighborhood, not Yees. But go ahead. Look, look, man, <laughs> I, I can't. Anybody who's promoting black men in that light, it's a strong no for me, man. We, you, you said you said something about accepting things from from other people. Not only do they accept it, they expect it. They have no sort of, no sort of backbone, man. They they got a wishbone where they should have a backbone. You understand? <laughs> like when I wake up every morning, not only do I expect to feed myself, but I know there's others who are relying on me. And I think until you until you until you get in that position, you don't know what being a man is about. Until you are responsible for yourself and others, you cannot. You cannot speak for us. You cannot. And they find all of these strange people with these, these new values. I, I, I don't know what's up with Tank. You know, he look like he work out and stuff. But I, what does that mean? You know, I was stunned when, when I heard that. I was like, oh, and I turned it off. And I turned it off. I will not allow that, that, that visual or that image of Black masculinity is not what I knew coming up. That's not the example I had. That's not the example I set for my son. It's one thing to, to accept people for who they are, but it's something totally different to normalize behaviors and introduce it to them and make them conform into something that makes you comfortable. If I'm making any sense, you know? I, I, I don't have anything against anyone, but I'm doing my thing. I, I'm, a, I'm a heterosexual black man and I expect my son to be a heterosexual black man. Why? It's called reproduction. I think I laid down to reproduce me. You understand what I'm saying? That, 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 that's just how I see it. It's called reproduction. It's not. It's called reproduction for a reason, man. You know. But but anyway. Uh, now I, I'm not gonna run from your conversation because I am hiding just because you know it, it's delicate for me and there's a lot of heat. But I, I totally get what you're saying. Uh, I'm not hostile at all to people's lifestyle choices. But I, I will say I talk with my friends and family all the time that to say like, hey, we're moving in a direction in this country where the black heterosexual man with any type of Christian values is position well below the black gay man. We're not on equal footing in America right now with the black. The black gay man is preferred. It's promoted and it's preferred. And 
just as a black heterosexual man with some Christian values, it's like I, I've always felt like, damn, I'm, I'm, how many more people can I get behind? Can, can I fall behind? And uh, don't blame me. I don't blame gay men for fighting for equality or fighting for their standing in this country. Don't be mad at me if I fight for mine. And, and I, I think you make a hell of a point with the word reproduction. And because and I've said it to people all the time, I was like, hey, look, don't be upset at parents, a man and a woman who can produce a child. That, that's what God or a higher power set up. A man and a woman can produce a child. Two men can't produce a child. Two women can't produce a child. Takes a man and a woman. Don't be upset that heterosexual men and women get married have kids and want those kids to reflect their values. And how can you blame kids? Yeah. How, how can you blame them for that? Everybody, everybody wants to be around other people. Oh, well, you share my values. We reflect each other. That's generally speaking. I, most of my guy friends were athletes. We shared values on how we looked at athletics and participated in athletics. That's a human, natural mindset. And so, you know, parents have every right, if they so choose, to want their kids to reflect their values. If they're open to their kids doing whatever, I got no problem with that. Their parents, they can think whatever they want, but I'm just not going to get upset at heterosexual parents that want their kids to be heterosexual. Yeah. I'm moving right along. I also saw that. Um, Thank Donald you for letting Trump. me off the hook and can move it on. <laughs> <laughs> I, I also saw that uh, Donald Trump, he was not impeached. Um, however, the NAACP and um, Congressman Benny Thompson out of Mississippi, I believe, are now suing him, filing a lawsuit based on the Ku Klux Klan Act of 1871, which was uh, made to prosecute um, two or more people in a conspiracy to stop an elected official from taking office. So in other words, the Negroes are, are on the way to the rescue for the Democratic Party. What are your thoughts on that, man? Uh, one, just listening to your explanation, because I, I, I saw the story, read as much into the story as I could stomach at the time. I didn't know what the Ku Klux Klan Act was about. But having you retell it, it makes perfect sense because the KKK was always, at its inception, a political organization. It was the enforcement arm of the Democratic Party. And so 
uh, I mean, that's just facts. It was, you know, Emancipation Proclamation, Black people started gaining political power instantly because there were so many Black people in the South and they had the right to vote and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and so I think that the NAACP, like a lot of organizations with nice names and histories and narratives that, uh, you know, are easy to sell. It's an enforcement arm of the Democratic Party. Mm. It's not, the, the NAACP is not the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People. It's the National Association of Colored People for the Democratic Party. And uh, that's, again, because how we are making January 6th a race issue, it's just, it's just amazing. It's amazing. White people went and confronted white people at the Capitol, and somehow it was this race thing. It was a Klan rally or whatever. And th that, again, it, it speaks to like, we've had our identity snatched from us. Our identity is the Democratic Party. That's what being Black is. It means being it, liberal, yeah. Yes. Absolutely. It is. And so, again, I don't know who came up with that or, or how we got here to where being Black means being liberal and being a Democrat and supporting all Democrat policies. But it's a hell of a gimmick. And the, the fact that the NAACP and Benny Thompson are participating in it, it has nothing to do with Black people. It has everything to do with Democratic politics. And I, I would just love to know, and maybe at some point someone's going to answer this question. Under four years of Trump, what happened to Black people? Because the Democratic Party would have you believe that Black people died in record numbers, were unemployed in record numbers, had their wealth eviscerated, were the targets of white racist groups all under the Trump administration, and that those four years was just a horror story for Black people. And maybe it was, maybe I live in such a protected space that maybe it was, but I, I just haven't been, no one's brought me the proof that, that something, you know, like, oh my God, if Trump isn't destroyed, Black people are so vulnerable and it could be just like the last four years. And I, I, I would just like to know, because, and people don't get it, because I've always figured out a way regardless of who the president was, I've figured out a way to move forward and to advance my life, uh, whether he's Democrat or Republican or whatever. But I, I would like to know, even during uh, George Bush II, during his president, presidency, are, are there things we can point to where we say, oh, man, when he was president, I mean, it was just a travesty for Black people. I, I just, I don't think, 
the Democrats or Republicans, I, I don't think whoever's in the presidency, I, I'm not sure if it matters all that much. And, and hell, I could put together a hell of an argument that it's like, actually, when the Democrats are in the presidency and in control, that's when the policies and things get created that actually really, really do a lot of damage to Black people. But I, yeah, this NAACP thing is baffling, but not, not, not all that surprising. I, I see. I see it as a stunt, you know. I I got behind Coleman Young II when he ran for mayor against Mike Duggan in in Detroit. And, and Coleman is a a Democrat. He he describes himself as a progressive, but Detroit hasn't had anything but Democratic. Uh, mayors for the last 60 or 70 years. So you, you're either a Democrat in Detroit or you just don't exist, you know? So, but what I learned from that, and I was his number one donor, top donor when he ran, because I felt through him, I could do something to help the community. But what I learned is that the community has a long list of needs, but you can't bank on them to donate any money. And that brings me to Mr. Benny Thompson. There's 435 members of the House of Representatives, and he is one. Most of them don't, nobody will ever know who they are. They'll come and they'll go. The way you draw attention to yourself is with spectacle. This lawsuit is a spectacle. And by engaging in this spectacle, funding will be directed to him for when he runs again. Because these people, this is their livelihood. This is their job. If they get voted out of office, I mean, think how sweet this job is. You show up, you cast a vote or two here, there. You're not really doing a goddamn thing unless you're the top members, you know, the, the Nancy Pelosi's and everybody. And they determine what everybody rank and file do. So this guy, Benny Thompson, to me, he's like the gorilla glue girl of politics right now. That, that's how I see him. You know, he's like the gorilla. The, the gorilla glue girl of politics, man. And he better be careful. I got two words for him, Andrew Gillum. He better not have nothing in his closet because the people that he's, he's jumping out there with, I mean, I don't think, I don't think Trump would them be easy like that. And they make examples out of people, I believe. If you got dirt on you, it's gonna come out, man. And for being the mouthpiece, I just think, what, what, what is he doing? He's from Mississippi. I'm sure they need things down there. How is this gonna help his constituents, the people that voted for him? I, I, I just don't know. And therein lies the problem for us because we're caught up with celebrities who are being paid, promoted by the same funding source as our candidates. 
And if you notice, our, our celebrities endorse our candidates a lot because they're all feeding from the, the same trough. You understand what I'm saying? Like, so it's like you guys, I'll pair you up with you and you with you and, and you go out there and, and, and be the Negro Wranglers. Just dupe them again for us. Make sure you get them for cheap. And that's what they do. He's gonna, con he's gonna give his constituents the fact that I'm gonna go to Washington and fight for you. And how do you know that? Because I filed a lawsuit against the president, <laughs> the former president. <laughs> you know? and, and that would, that would uh, pass for sub substantive contribution outcome. And it's just the it's just the smoke and mirrors. It's all the symbolism, all the full outrage. It's just one big circle jerk, man. It's like, yo, what the hell? You know, and, and, and nobody, nobody seems to see through it. So I I um I'm skeptical of the NAACP. I'm aware of their um their origins. And and, and all organizations even those that do wrong have done some good. A con man will tell you the truth eight times, but it's the ninth time when he lies to you that he gets your money. He, he earned your trust. So everybody who's doing wrong and duping us, they can point to good things that they do. Uh, turkey giveaways, uh, I donated money to this school and so on and so forth. And, and, and you gotta really be a, 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 a deeper, not a surface level thinker, to see past the, the con, man. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think you make some, you made a great point here about the con man will tell you the truth eight times and then boom, it's the ninth one where here's the con, here's the payoff. I don't want to make excuses for people, but I do want to say that I think it's so much harder for people to see the forest because there's so many big trees planted in front of us that I, I think it's much harder to see the big picture today than it was 20 years ago. It's this big tech thing, this social media, Google, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, the, the, you know, with Facebook really and Google being the heads of the snake, they're so clever and so advanced at creating confusion and creating false. Right before you know we hopped on this call, I was looking at some study where they asked either it was conservatives or liberals or Democrats and Republicans, it's all the same. But they ask people, excuse me, they ask people how many black, unarmed black people were killed in 2019 by the police. And 44% of liberals said more than a thousand where only 20% of Republicans or conservatives uh, said more than 1,000. I think they said the actual number was 27 wow. in 2019. 
But the, we have created this false reality that has 44% of liberals thinking thousands of unarmed black men in the thousands were killed in 2019 by police. And so I just, I, I, that's why I'm not as optimistic as I used to be because I'm like, wow, the depths of this matrix that they've constructed is so deep and so much a part of the culture now for all of America. But then, and I've said this from the outset, from the moment I got on Twitter, I think in 2009, I've said to people and I say it repeatedly, I was like, why do they have black Twitter? And I was like, anything that is good, that is black, white people immediately duplicate. And I was like, so if black Twitter were a good thing, there would be a white Twitter. There would be this philosophical or theoretical white Twitter. And I said, so clearly, this black Twitter thing was a marketing ploy because trust me, they could see what they were going to do with Twitter and how they were going to use race to control the masses with Twitter and social media. They could see it long before. If Twitter was invented in 2005 or 2006, I guarantee you in 2002, when they were just putting together and just formulating it, they were like, we're going to have this thing black Twitter. Watch how we use race to control the media, influencers, corporate America, everybody through this social media app, Twitter. And the first thing we got to do is convince black people that Twitter is their best friend and that Twitter is where they go to gain political power. And, and that's why they were, you know, Black Lives Matter being created as a hashtag on Twitter and blowing up. That's all orchestrated. That's all algorithms. That's not some organic thing that just happened. It was like somebody was pushing buttons and building algorithms boom, now we off and running. And so I just, I feel sorry for all of us, black, white, whomever, but just like the confusion and the, the tools of deception are so advanced now. Artificial intelligence, algorithms, mm -hmm. that I, I just, I don't know if we can untangle ourselves. Uh, I don't know if a red pill actually works at this point. Uh, because people are people are so fearful. People will see the truth, just like I talked about earlier in this conversation. Somebody read the truth and go, man, I really like what this tweet represents. Oh, I've been trained to think that if Jason Whitlock said it, it's evil. So even if I like it, I'm going to ignore it because of who the messenger was. And people have been trained through... Again, my crimes in the media as a black man are basically like helping to build platforms for black people. That's what makes me an Uncle Tom and a sellout. Building the undefeated, shaping, speak for yourself. Blah, blah. Those 
are, those are my crimes. I'm a sellout because I help build black platforms. Oh, who, who could do that? Who, who could turn a positive into a negative other than this social media matrix, artificial intelligence, the bots, the whole nine yards, where they've con Jason Whitlock, he don't like black people. Yeah, I know he keeps getting involved with projects that support black people, but don't trust that. Trust us. He, you know, he tweeted that Serena was overweight 10 years ago. You know, he don't like, that's proof there that he doesn't like black people. <laughs> oh, man. And speaking of projects you get involved in too, yeah, I, I definitely want to thank you for coming on the advisory board of the Coleman Alexander Young, um, the second educational foundation teaching STEM to the youth in Detroit. You do a lot of things that people aren't aware of. They don't like your message, but that's because they value words. And, and words, words that they can't even <laughs> handle. Not that the words are lies, but they value words more than actions. So many of our heroes, and I, I say our, not including me or you specifically, but I, I don't want to talk down on people. It applies to who it applies to. But so many of our people, man, so many of us, we idolize people who are just, they just good for spewing rhetoric. There's no, there's no, no deliverables, no kind of, no kind of deliverables. I mean, um, they don't know what it is to put their money in their pocket and support something that they believe. Uh, one of the fascinating things I saw, aside from not even donating money to the campaigns, because you could say the argument can be made, they don't have money to donate. Okay, you can volunteer to get people to the polls, the elderly, the sick, uh, before COVID that is, you know, yeah. now you can just mail it in, but before, nothing. See, money is important. But there's other ways you could contribute if you don't have money. You can give your time. And, and I, I don't see enough of that. It's almost like this, this mindset of somebody else is going to do it. It needs to be done. It needs to be done for me. But somebody else is going to do it. And they're going to do it on their own without my input, without my assistance. And it just doesn't work like that in life. Yeah, I think there's also just like, I'm old that. Why should I give up my money and make any sacrifice? I'm old this. And so again, like when you feel like you owe something, you running out to the mailbox every day looking for that check to, to come. You, you, ain't, you ain't about to write no checks. I'm old something. So every day I, I'm looking in my mailbox for what I'm owed. And that's the mentality that has been created for us. And that's the message we get from the mainstream media, from social media, you're owed a debt. And that's circling this whole conversation all the way back to where it started about reparations. The whole conversation about reparations is about convincing more that you're owed something and that America owes you something. And again, this is where I go back to, like, do we even have a fundamental understanding of America? America owes you freedom, and that is it. 
and it took some time for black people to get what was owed us. We had to fight a civil war. We had to go through a civil rights movement to get what we were owed, freedom. And now that they fought the civil war, you got voting rights and you've on paper by law, you've been given everything that you're owed by America. America promises freedom. Now we have basically said, okay, you've given us freedom. Now we want to change the debt to love. Hmm. Give us love and give us cell phones and <laughs> give us this or give us that and out of your love. And, and again, I, I keep going back as my like, I'll say it over and over again in 2021. America promises freedom. God promises love. Quit looking for love in the wrong places. You, you won't be, as long as you're looking for love from America and these random white people that you'll never see and thinking, one day I'm going to wake up and there's never going to be a viral video over Twitter of, of, of white people doing anything I disagree with. You're going to be living a long time for that. I, I, I'm just appalled at the the continuous spectacle that's being created to steer us in a certain direction. The NAACP was formed in, in 1909 and it, it came about supposedly because of the rash of actual lynchings. Back then when they said lynch, they meant somebody was hanging from a rope uh, black men were actually burned at the stake, so on and so forth. Between 1897 and 1920, there were documented over 3,400 lynchings in America. So they did, they, they addressed some things. They addressed something that needed to be addressed. But then we turn around and in 2019, uh, presidential candidate, Kamala Harris and presidential candidate Cory Booker, they introduced a bill to make lynching a federal crime. And I'm, I'm like, this, this shit is from a hundred years ago. Like what, what the, you know, what, what are we doing here? But these are the kind of um, emotional triggers that are used to manipulate us. I don't, you know, the only lynching I've heard of recently was Jussie Smollett. When he had, I don't know, he kept a rope around his neck for an hour after they tried to lynch him on his way to Subway or something to get a foot long, no pun intended. You know, and... <laughs> I didn't laugh at that. I, didn't <laughs> look, look. I was laughing about something else. <laughs> look, and... Uh, it, it, it's just like, if these are our leaders and this is, this is how they serve us, what kind of service are we getting? Where are the tangibles? Where are the deliverables? I don't need you to, to placate me in any way. You're going to stop lynching a hundred years later. I, I, don't, I don't need that. You know, uh, I need to know 
What's happening with my taxes? What, what's up with this economy? What's up with this virus? That too. What, what, what's really going on here? Let me, I, I, I'm going to go back to one more fundamental, particularly for those of you that are parents, and it's right up your alley. Mm -hmm. What are they teaching in our school? Oh, Period, end of story. Again, it's like your STEM program. Are we even teaching kids what? the basics so that they can survive in a global world or just in, in America? Are they even teaching that? Or are we spending so much time trying to teach them how to, how to think about racial issues, what to think about ra racial issues, but you don't even know two plus two is four. You haven't been taught how to think critically, but you've been taught how to think emotionally so you can avoid ever saying anything that offends someone Black, even though the Black person can basically take anything that comes out of your mouth and connect it to race. It, well. That, that's why I wanted to do the STEM because I'm really, and, and I'm not proficient in math or anything. I don't even know how to operate this equipment and stuff like that. But I, my time came and went already. I found my way. These kids, they got to know how to do this stuff. And I just wanted, I wanted to do my part, my small part to try to help however few or many that I could to be competitive in this world. The, comp the competition is not with, with white people. The competition is with everyone in this world. You gotta be able to compete. The pilot school that we used in Detroit was Martin Luther King Junior High School, right? And in 2020, we were at Martin Luther King High School on Martin Luther King Day, the holiday. And what they had set up for the kids was all kinds of um, exhibits, you know, showing Dr. King's journey, Selma, they recreated the scenes, the props, nooses, all of this. And there, there was even a part where the people were making speeches and they had some of the kids pretending to be racist, yelling out racial epithets and so on and so forth, right? And, uh, uh, this actually happened last year and I was sitting there, right? And, and, and I got to tell you, I'm not, I'm not ashamed of being black of, of our history or any of that. I just think that, man, if we keep looking back, I, I don't know how we going to fit in the future. And I want to try to make, help the kids compete because I'm not saying that shouldn't have happened because it was Martin Luther King High School on Martin Luther King Day. But I, I would hope that the same enthusiasm is, is there to push not just the kids in the program, but kids in the whole school system to be competitive. The past is important, but man, the past happened already. We gotta make sure that what happened back then don't happen again. And, and, and you do that by fortifying yourself. 
with education, with economics, and, and being active in your community, and not voting for people because they do publicity stunts, like this, um, this Benny Thompson guy, or even AOC, or any of them. Who would know them if not for spectacle? They don't even matter. I don't want to leave they, the point. They're one so. of 435 people. We only know them because of the spectacle they engage in. Are we voting for spectacles? I don't want to. I don't want to run away from the point you just made, though. Just because this is. I want you and people that are watching this to think of how many times you'll see a story written or something over Twitter, where uh, Steve Kerr, the coach of the Golden State Warriors, said this about a month ago, or maybe at the beginning of Black History Month. And, and what we've turned Black history into, just notice how many times people are saying, I didn't know about this atrocity that happened to Black people. This wasn't taught to me in school. And I'm like, white people teach history about their triumphs. We teach history about atrocities that happened to us as if we have accomplished nothing. And so we, and no disrespect, we're so concerned with teaching Emmett Till's history as opposed to teaching Booker T. Washington's accomplishments. We, 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 and again, just go look over oh, Twitter. Lewis. <laughs> yeah. Go look over Twitter and in the public discourse, how many times you'll hear someone's connect connect black history to an atrocity that happened to us. And so, we weren't taught this in school. We weren't taught every single atrocity that happened to us. And therefore we were denied our history. Is our history really a history of atrocity? Is, is, is it, history is about instilling confidence in people. That, that's, Oh man, you can do this because X, Y, and D, Z did this. That's and you got to learn from history. And again, I'm not saying we should avoid all the atrocities, but we've we have black history. We have Black Atrocity Month, not Black History Month. It's Black Atrocity Month, where we focus in on every atrocity that ever happened, rather than all of the incredible accomplishments that we've been a part of and have made America great through. I'm just blown away that we, and again, it's a way of teaching black people, hey man, if white people aren't part of what you're doing, aren't on your side, you can't accomplish anything. And that's just not true. There've been so many black people that have accomplished great things by standing on their own two feet or partnering with and working with other black people. We're not taught that ever. We're at the tail end of Black Atrocity Month. And I, I literally, I, I can't remember, I can remember when Steve Kerr tweeted this out of, he, there was a little laundry list of atrocities. He said he didn't know happened. And I can't believe America hasn't taught this. And I was like, wow. Again, could you imagine being a parent 
and sitting down with your kids. And let me tell you our family history, Junebug. Let me tell you all the bullshit and atrocities that have happened to our family. And all of it's going to happen to you. Scared you're not careful. And instead, what we did in my family and what most families do, we told amazing stories of like, man, your granddaddy did blah, blah, blah. But then he moved to Indianapolis, became the biggest numbers runner at Ford Motor Company. And he bought this and he bought that. And he put uh, his niece through college and he did this and that, blah, blah. It, I don't. You know what I call it? I call it the grievance industrial complex. <laughs> and the reason why those positive stories that do exist are promoted, I believe, is because they, it would also promote capitalism as a solution for our problems. And there's a heavy dose of socialism that's, that doesn't want to highlight how capitalism works for us. So the emphasis is going to be on the atrocities. And I think it's by design for that reason. It makes people feel like this system's not going to work for us. They're just killing us. They're shooting us down. They're lynching us, blah, 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 blue. It's, it, it sows the seeds of hopelessness because you will not get to see the success stories. Those are my thoughts. But before we, before we wrap it up, I want to talk about somebody in your field and that you know a lot more about than I do, who passed away recently. I was listening to uh, Donald Trump speak about Rush Limbaugh in an interview. And he mentioned that Rush did his show every day for three hours that he could hardly hear, could hardly hear. he had some hearing device. If there was more than one person in the room he couldn't really hear things. He couldn't hear music. And he reached tens of millions of people daily. Now, so this is your profession. What does it take to get to that platform? And how impressive is that? Well, I mean, the guy was a talented broadcaster. There's no question about it. Uh, what, what I found interesting about the reaction to his death was that so many people were celebrating as if, you know, the Grand Wizard of the KKK had died. And uh, that Rush Limbaugh's entire uh, success and legacy was built around racism or the denigration of Black people or uh, minority people or whatever. And, you know, I, 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 I found the whole conversation like dishonest because it's like, well, hold, hold on. And people are about to get really upset when I say this. But I'm just, I want somebody to go listen to NWA's Two, they put out two albums, NWA did. Go listen to them, each individual song. I, I once had a reporter do this who thought that, oh, NWA did all this revolutionary, challenged the establishment 
music led by F the police. And I was like, no, nah, man, I, I was, I was the first person on Ball State's campus with NWA's first album. Straight uh shit. I'm like, I, Straight out of the words for life, I think oh, was the first that's right. was the first album. I was the first person on Ball State's campus with that in the late 80s. And I mean, I know their history. I used to I listened to their music. And so I had this reporter, I was like, no, write. I want you to listen to every song on these two albums because they put out two and write down whether they had a positive outlook on black people or was it challenging them. And other than F the Police, virtually every song was some sort of denigration of black people, some sort of promotion of violence towards black people, uh, you know, celebration of gang lifestyle, whatever. And I said, look, man, we, Rush Limbaugh cracked some jokes and was an entertainer and said some politically incorrect things on his show. But he also did a bunch of other things. And, you know, I don't think we can just reduce him to the non-PC jokes or commentary that he had. But if that's gonna be the standard, what do we say, how do we remember all these rappers that we celebrate? Nipsey Hussle, <laughs> I mean, according to his eulogy, he was right there neck and neck with Martin Luther King and Malcolm X. He was right in there in that same lane. And every rapper, gangster rapper, whatever, Dr. Dre, Easy E, I, I like Ice Cube, but throw him in there. All of them. If we went and go listen to their music, did they say more or less negative things about Black people than Rush Limbaugh? And who actually heard what they said as opposed to what Rush Limbaugh said? I don't know. I don't know personally any black people to listen to Rush Limbaugh. I, I just don't know it. I, I can remember occasionally listening to him. I think when I was in college, picked up some of the highlights later in his career. He, he referenced throughout my journalistic career, he referenced my work several times over the years. Uh, but he's just not relevant in our community. But these rappers, who are three, four, five, six, seven-year-old kids can repeat every lyric of the music that they sing. They can, they know all the lyrics to WAP and all the other shit that these rappers, black rappers put out. It has incredible influence on them. But when they die, those rappers will be celebrated as poets, great contributors to American society, champions for black people. But Rush Limbaugh, let's make the hashtag rest in piss uh, trend. Oh, okay. that was trending all over Twitter. Rest oh, in piss wow. and just, I mean, I'm telling you, you would have thought Hitler had come back to earth and died again 
based off the way social media reacted. And it was just mind blowing to me. And it, 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 you know, the guy was a talented broadcaster, uh, you know, and whether you agreed or disagreed with his politics, you had to be in awe of like his ability to maintain an audience like that for 30 some odd years. And it's ridiculous to try to say that, oh, well, he only maintained that audience because of racism. That's, that's ridiculous because if that's true, NWA and all the rappers have only maintained their relevance because of racism. Because trust me, the music, if you actually listen to it, it's very racist against black people. <laughs> I'm not surprised. I never listened to Rush. I'm not familiar with um, his content. I, I saw, you know, when he made the headlines a couple times when he was sick and some some other incident and uh, I heard the phrase bloviator or something like that, but I'm not surprised because the same way a lot of us identify race with political ideology, we, we identify our, our enemies, and I mean enemies, not opposition, I mean enemies through political ideology. And, and I say that because Herman Cain was, was black and they, they said some pretty nasty things about him when he passed away. And it's because of the, the politics. What does it say if politics makes you hate someone? Because I am, I am not a, a liberal, a, a Republican, Democrat, any of that, but I can work with a Democrat like Coleman Young if I think it's gonna help the community because his political foundation does not make me hate him. I disagree with him on certain things, but if he's not in office, it doesn't even matter if what he believes, you know what I mean? Like if he's not the guy calling the shots, why would I even like, Herman Cain, I can't say I was a big fan. I, don't, I, I know very little about Herman Cain. I know he made a lot of money. I think he sold some pizzas. He had something 999 or something. To, I know little stuff like that. But I also know he didn't do anything for people to hate him and celebrate his death. And I find that that kind of intolerance seems, intolerance and hatred seems to be the standard on the left. I mean, it's one thing with, I, I don't know, man, why would you say rest in piss or anything? Somebody you've never met, who's never had a direct impact on you one way or the other. Why, why would you harbor such strong feelings like It's that? a system of control and it, it doesn't just control black people. The beauty of what the Democrats have done, it controls white people as well. And so what they have set up through the media is a dynamic of if you're black and you don't support us, you ain't really black, like it says on your shirt. But even worse, you're a sellout and an Uncle Tom, and you a will cool be yeah. And, all of that. yeah. and you will be remembered 
the same way we have remembered Herman Cain as a stooge for racist white people. And he's a sellout of the town. And his family, Herman Cain, went to his death knowing, damn, there's only people writing this way about me. When you punch my name into Google, my grandkids, when I'm gone, they're going to see all this stuff. The granddaddy was X, Y, and Z, blah, blah, blah. And so for Black people, it's just like, and particularly Black people in the media, is like, do you really want that kind of smoke? You want to complicate your life that way? Uh, and so the answer is very logical and very easy. No, I don't want to complicate my life that way. I'm going to stay loyal publicly to the Democratic Party. For white people, again, if you don't support the Democratic Party, you're racist. You are a racist. And so most white people don't want the burden of being labeled a racist. All they, they don't really care that much about politics. They care about, just like anybody else, any other man, or man, I'm going to get laid this week. Is my wife going to be up my ass? <laughs> are my kid, do I got this money I need for my kids to go on this field trip and blah, blah, blah? Am I saving for their college fund? Oh, damn, my, my mother's in a nursing home and I need extra money to make sure she's in a good one. They got all kinds of, and it's like, do I really want to take on this burden of being considered a racist by supporting a Republican or conservative views or whatever? It's like, nah, I don't. So I'm going to identify as a Democrat and a liberal, and that is my ADT sign. <laughs> I'm in, or my state farm insurance against racism. I'm a Democrat and I'm a liberal. You can't call me racist. And so that's where the uh, power, and it's a great tool of persuasion, if you want to avoid being called a racist, become a Democrat or a liberal. And if you're black and you want to avoid being called an Uncle Tom or a sellout, support the Democratic Party publicly. Boom. That's all you got to do. And you really don't care about politics in the first place. Very easy to do. Yeah. I, I mean, they've attacked. Uh, what's the guy from HUD? Um, ben Carson. Ben Carson. They've attacked him. They, black wife from, from, I think, from Philadelphia, black neighborhood in Philadelphia or whatever. He's a big Uncle Tom in a sellout. And, and what would be crazy is that uh, the people leading the attack on him could very well be married to a white woman or a white man <laughs> and haven't seen the inside of a black neighborhood in 30 years. Oh, man. Uh, but they, <laughs> Herman, uh, Ben Carson, sell out ass with that black. <laughs> Yo, <man. laughs> they, they attacked Jim Brown for going to the White House with Kanye. There you go. There Jim you go. Jim Brown, like, he didn't even really say anything. He was just there because he, he knows Trump, you know? And that's the other thing. Let me just say this. Jim Brown, during eight years of the Obama presidency, couldn't get a meeting with Obama. Could not get a meeting. Jim Brown is a good friend of mine. I, I'm down with Jim Brown. And uh, 
Again, his America I Can program and very, all of very good. that stuff. That shit is real. Couldn't get a meeting with Obama, and y'all mad he took a meeting with Trump. The funny thing is, right? Again, I, I'm not a Republican. I got to preface it because I'm no shill. I don't get paid for anything. I just see things as they are, and I'm about success how to succeed in any endeavor. Trump, I'm willing to bet, has far more black friends and spent more time around black people than Obama did. Tough to say, just just keep in mind. I said, I'm willing to bet, I'm willing to bet. (laughs) I know, you're gonna lose the bet, you're gonna lose the bet. I get your sentiment, but Mm -hmm. I'm gonna, just keep in mind, Obama, whether he wanted to or not, or maybe it was the choir director that brought him there. I'm not sure, but he sat in that black church in Chicago for a good 15, yeah. 20 years. 20 years? I, I, it was a long time. 10 years, I don't know. He belonged yeah. to Jeremiah, Jeremiah's church. When I, when I see all those pictures of, of Trump with everybody from Diddy to Don King to all the fighters, is Mike Tyson endorsed Trump. You know, I, I I beg to differ, man. The only, I'm going to give you another reason why. Just, just dude, Obama's in Chicago, and it's hard to avoid black people in Chicago. So I just can't. Man, when you got money, the kind of money he got, you're I, avoiding a lot of people, man. Look. I know there's just too many different little <laughs> social gatherings and events. You know, it's hard. I, I would, I think your sentiment is accurate. I just don't think factually it would stand up just, just because of where he went to church in the city he lived in. Just keep in mind, Jesse Jackson, Rainbow Coalition, Chicago, Nation of Islam, Farrakhan, Chicago. Uh, <laughs> it, it's, it's, hell, Michael Jordan, Chicago. It's just taste of Chicago. There's all kinds of just events in Chicago that he ran with and associated with. Now, again, who were his true friends? I guess that's what you I'm might have. About. You may have an that's argument. What, that's what I'm talking about for sure. Because photo ops, I I, I don't believe when I see him with. Okay, but the Boston, other thing, I'm gonna give you the other reason why. Okay. It's just like his wife, man. I, I I think his wife uh, just again, and I, this I, is I something I got. That. This is some expertise that I, I can. Where you going with that? Yeah, this is some expertise I have. Yeah, I I, I got to receive that one. Day. W- w- I got to receive that. Yeah. yeah w- 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 when you dating a white woman, like Trump was, and like I have, that that'll put you in some circles that you normally wouldn't be in. Nah, nah. Uh, as soon as you said his wife, yeah. you made me. That's my view, you know. Yeah, he, she got to be happy at the events they're going to. Yeah, yeah. She grew up there. All right. Yeah, I just saw the picture of him with Richard Branson skydiving with Richard Branson on his back, and all. I'm just like, he's out there surfing. No, I think is that the name of the choir director, Reverend Rice Church, is Richard Branson? Is that who you're talking about? No. Oh. Something to do from Virgin, Virgin oh. Atlanta, the airline. You done missed my joke, but go ahead, school. <laughs> <laughs>
He done been went straight. <laughs> I think that I forgot the choir director, baby. I know who you're talking about. Yeah, but anyway, man, uh, it's it's just it's just tough. And, and at the end of the day, it doesn't matter who your friends are. To be honest, it's what you do with them. Are, are you an asset? Are, are you being true to who you say you are? If you say you're for black people, what do you do for black people? What are you doing with them? And I'm not saying that's anybody's responsibility, but don't misrepresent who you are and what you're about. Because we got people out here, man, that they hang on every word of these famous people and they really believe that stuff. Sad. And they knew they do need to be Again, but it's the end thing. All these athletes right now believe they are leaders and they're, they're taking America. They've been fed this gas and we're, we're the smartest people and we're going to show America how it should be. And I would much prefer them to have a slam dunk contest or host a 707 camp then try to tell me or anybody how America should be and who I, somebody should vote for. They're just not qualified. It, it, would be, it would be like if I'm telling you if, uh, if Nutrisystem named me their spokesperson, people would be like, I'm not gonna be the spokesperson for Nutrisystem. He better get on, get off slim slow and get on slim fast. And, and that's, but, but we have named athletes leaders of jobs that they're just not remotely qualified for. And I'm the bad guy for pointing it out. I'm just pointing out a fact. If you spend two hours or three hours a day in a gym working on your physical conditioning and ability to knock down a jump shot. To me, that disqualifies you from being a political leader at the same time. You, you would take them three hours and focus on politics. I, you know, is it, you can't be a leader once a month while collecting a, a check for speaking. That's not leadership. That's a business you're running to put money in your bank account. You're not leading anything. So. Well, on that note, Jason, I just want to thank you again for joining me today in this episode of Politicking with Jason Whitlock. Was this thank better you, or worse man. than last week? I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I think we went a little more in depth this time. But thank yeah. you, Curtis. All right, brother. Hopefully I'll see you next week. For sure. All right. My man. This is Schoon TV, hosted by Curtis Schoon. Share, subscribe, and like our YouTube channel to get alerts for new episodes. And stay tuned for SchoonTV.com. The media site is coming.